Welcome to the Oregon Group podcast. You know, we're the Oregon Group are big fans of anything related to climate transition, be that the greening of global energy and transportation, environmental commodities, and of course, carbon credits. And it's carbon credits that we're here to focus on today, specifically by asking some tough questions about the prospects for this relatively young but popular asset class. And here to answer those questions is one of our co-founders, Justin Cochran. Now, by way of introduction, Justin was a high flyer in the investment banking world before jumping the fence to found and run public companies in the natural resource space. He's raised over $2 billion for various commodities businesses over the years. And what makes him perfect for diving right into the heart of the carbon credit sector is that he's the co-founder and CEO of Carbon Streaming Corp. Justin, before I get into the hard questions, let me start with this. You've gone from success to success as an investor. Why did you choose to get into carbon credits? Uh, that is a wonderful question, David. Uh, why carbon credits? Carbon credits because we just saw a wholesale movement from individuals, from investors, from companies, from corporations, from governments around recognizing climate change was, was a real issue. And the best way, in my opinion, in order to, real, to really have a, a transformational impact on, on fighting climate change is, is access to capital and, and access to the funds needed to invest in, in these climate fighting, these, these, these climate projects around the world. And, and carbon credits, frankly, is the only way that we can really put a price on carbon emission and express a view on pollution and, and on helping to fight pollution. And it just was, a, there was no public company doing this at the time. And, and we saw an opportunity to launch a carbon credits investment company focused on these voluntary projects. And uh, the model's been extraordinarily well received. Okay, let's dial things up a bit. If we were talking six months ago, I'm not sure I'd have any tough questions to ask you because for carbon credits, the story was basically growth, growth, and more growth. But here we are in spring of 2022, and the most obvious question for me to ask is, what has happened to carbon credit pricing? Again, an excellent question. What we what we saw when Russia invaded Ukraine was what I would call just you know a risk off uh, appetite in the market. And given that that carbon credits is still certainly from a North American perspective considered a relatively new asset class, we saw a pretty dramatic decrease in the price of carbon credits, both in compliance markets or regulated markets around the world, and in these voluntary carbon offsets where carbon streaming is is primarily. Uh, transacting. So there was a fairly significant reduction in the neighborhood of 30 to 40% sort of immediately in, in that sort of risk-off mode, I would say. Now we've seen those prices recover most of their losses where they might might now be down 15 to 20% from their peaks, but nowhere near the, the, the eye of the storm that we saw you know, a, few, a few months ago and still extremely bullish on the long-term fundamentals for carbon as, a, as an asset. You point to the fact that we've had a strong but still incomplete recovery. When do you think we're going to see prices return to their former highs? And in fact, when are we going to surpass those levels? How high do you think prices could eventually reach? When you look at the analysis around around the world, that's done by several independent organizations in, in terms of what carbon price is needed to affect the change that, that needs to, to come about in order to reduce global emissions by 50% by the end of this decade. I mean, that's a, that is a massive, massive undertaking. Remembering it took us 
35, almost 35 years to double emissions up to, you know, over 50 billion tons today to cut that in half by the end of this decade is a, is a massive, massive undertaking. So the expectation is the average voluntary carbon price needs to be close to $100 a credit to build up the incentives to develop projects and reduce emissions. That is up from a, an average price today that's that's probably close to around $10. So really a massive, massive increase is forecasted by the end of this decade to meet the global demand and provide the incentive to reduce emissions. And what I love about this commodity is that price is being regulated around the world such that we do achieve those kinds of prices and we do reduce global emissions. And of course, you know, almost 200 countries around the world have signed up to the Paris Agreement commitments to reduce emissions and putting a price on carbon is the best way to do that. Let's get into perception. Every industry has its pros and its cons, its fans, its haters. What's strange to me is this, carbon credits are a pretty simple concept and they work. I mean, this is a sector that is deploying corporate wealth to combat climate change. And sure, there's always going to be some bad actors, but you know the world doesn't have a lot of time here. We need to deal with emissions like carbon, and we need to do it now. Yet every so often, another negative piece crops up in the media. So why does the carbon sector still have a challenge with perception? The biggest reason why I, why I believe there's still a challenge from a reputational standpoint for carbon is, is twofold. The first one, probably most relevant one in the early days of the carbon market going back about 15 years ago there were certainly forest conservation projects that issued carbon credits that never should have issued carbon credits either years later they were eventually deforested or projects that were not never under any threat of deforestation issuing carbon credits and so there was this quality concern from, from the buyer's and investor's standpoint of how do I know if I buy a carbon credit that it's a real, verifiable, permanent, uh, and this concept, this concept of additionality, a real additional carbon credit to what would have happened in a, in a base case scenario. The rules around issuing carbon credits have gotten much more vigorous. It's, it's much harder to get a carbon credit issued today than it was 15 years ago and thereby the quality of the projects that are issuing credits and the credits that are now issued, I would argue are significantly higher quality now than they were in the early days. But the market still you know, has some lasting impacts from, you know, from those earlier days in the carbon market. So that's one. The second one is this view, which I don't completely understand, but I, you know, let me you know, share the view, which is that allowing corporations to buy carbon offsets rather than than absolutely requiring an end to all emissions is a way of what people call corporate greenwashing you know allowing a, a polluter to continue to pollute while they buy a carbon offset and and where that argument completely falls apart is that there is absolutely no scenario where global emissions can go to zero overnight there is a path a well understood path that is going to take at least three decades to get us to a net neutral position. Net neutral being we're absorbing as much carbon from the atmosphere as we are emitting on an annual basis. And that, you know, by definition would be net zero. Um, that is a path that's going to take three decades. Between now and then, having corporations around the world 
supporting forest conservation projects, supporting reforestation projects, carbon capture projects, you know, mangrove blue, uh, restoration and, and marine ecosystem projects, renewable energy projects in, develop, in the developed world where power consumption is obviously increasing at, you know, almost exponential rates. Arguing that those are negative activities from, from a climate perspective, to me, just doesn't make any sense uh, at all. We have to throw everything but the kitchen sink at this issue and maybe even the kitchen sink if we want to truly tackle climate change and we should have been doing it a decade ago and so the carbon offsets that 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 corporate buyers are are buying is providing providing the economic incentive to have these projects developed around the world and you know as much as we might like to say altruism should prevail and these projects shouldn't need an economic incentive the reality is we're talking about almost $10 trillion of annual investment required to fight climate change. There needs to be an economic factor behind that $9 trillion of, of investment and carbon credits, carbon offsets, carbon allowances are the way to get us there. You know, I was chatting with the CEO of ERA the other day. And for our listeners, ERA runs a huge carbon project protecting a large chunk of Brazil's Cerrado Bayam. Um, you know, this is someone who has dedicated her entire career to protecting our climate. And carbon credits are essential for that project. She brought up an interesting point. The carbon sector is growing so fast, it's in danger of outstripping available skilled workers. How big a problem is manpower in the sector? And what is the industry doing to solve it? It is a real issue, David. There's no question about it. We are seeing you know, timelines for validation and verification of projects and the issuance of credits being stretched much longer than any project developer ever would have hoped. We need people, we need environmental sciences to do the audit and the verification work. For us, we hire consultants to help us you know, conduct due diligence and quite extensive due diligence on projects around the world. The, the registry bodies need people to review the information and, and issue. At the same time, we've got this work underway globally to bring more transparency and exchanges and the blockchain and other, other technologies is a way of you know, improving price transparency and, and liquidity in this market. That is all going to take a lot of manpower. And so what you do see is uh, the, the major organizations, organizations like Vera, who's by far the world's largest issuer of, of carbon credits, now taking active steps to streamline their business and bring in new people to reduce the bottleneck that exists at parts of the value chain. But also, I believe, and the industry is moving this way, to adopt satellite imagery and LiDAR-based remote sensing technology into our carbon reports, our carbon accounting, our forest loss data, as an example, when we're talking about forest conservation projects. And so to bring technology solutions that, frankly, have not been utilized heavily in this industry, it's been a very manual process of counting carbon and measuring carbon in dense forests and mangroves, which as you can imagine is a very intensive and costly process. So again, utilizing some more technology-based solutions to help us get there.
But as an industry, I do believe we are very, very short of manpower, and it will take a couple of years to, to properly adjust to this new reality that we have, which is a new focus and interest level in carbon and carbon credits and carbon projects around the world. And um, I do believe that that will, um, that will adjust. It will just take some time. Final question here. What can investors expect from the carbon sector over the next 12 to 24 months? Well, for, first off, the SEC a couple of weeks ago did announce a proposal to require uh, public companies in the U.S. To, to report scope one, scope two, and if material, their scope three emissions. That is a very, very significant outcome for the voluntary carbon market. What it means is that companies around the world, if they are disclosing their emissions, their emission levels, next natural question is going to be, well, what are you doing to either reduce or offset those emissions? Well, I, I do believe that SEC report, and we're going to see the same thing happen in Canada, is a big, big event for our market in driving incremental demand. We already see massive amounts of demand that have come into this market over the last 12 months that we didn't see 12 months ago. I expect that that is going to continue to, to occur. Uh, we're also going to see lots of new um, supply, lots of new projects coming online and being developed around the world to meet this, this forecasted increase in demand. And at the same time, we're going to, to continue to see more government regulations and intervention, I'll call it, but intervention in a positive way to support the development of domestic carbon projects around the world to help meet their Paris Agreement commitments, reducing carbon emissions. And uh, I think it's going to be a very, very exciting next couple of years. Uh, I, think, I, I think we all know this market 10 years from now is going to look very different than it does today. That's what presents the opportunity. Uh, it's a very exciting asset class you know, in a regulated commodity where that commodity is being regulated to go higher. So we are very much in the early innings, I believe, uh, or probably even still warming up uh, into what is going to be a carbon market that is around for decades and decades and decades. And it's, you know, frankly, it's probably the asset class of our generation and our kids' generation and, and beyond. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if you're interested in what we had to say, make sure you connect with us on social and subscribe to our newsletter.